0: In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, amen. Please be seated. On this, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, we're almost to Lent. Lent starts 10 days from now. Uh, We have next Sunday, which is the last Sunday after the Epiphany, and we'll have Shrove Tuesday, and then on Valentine's Day of all days, we'll have Ash Wednesday uh, and begin a Holy Lent. But this morning we continue to uh, glory in and meditate upon the manifestation and revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. That God the Son took up human nature in order to rescue and redeem us so that he might wage war against sin, death, and Satan, and win the victory, which we could not win for ourselves. This liturgical year, this calendar year, year B, we've been going through the gospel of Mark, and we'll continue to do so in both the Eucharistic and the office lectionaries. And the last few weeks, we've been in Mark chapter 1, and we've heard Uh, the calling of the disciples. We've heard the illuminative and authoritative teaching of our Lord, the exercising of demons, and the healing of the sick. And as we go through this gospel, or any of the four gospels for that matter, it is important to keep in mind two things. Well, two things for now. I mean, there's more than two things you need to keep in mind when you're reading Holy Scripture, but I'm just gonna give you two. Two things that I think are often diminished or outright ignored. Number one, the events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord are not mere backstory. The works of Christ during his earthly sojourn prior to his passion are not unimportant. On the contrary, they are essential and salvific. Both the death and the life of our Lord are vicarious. Because God took up human nature, uniting us to himself, everything that he did was on our behalf and for our benefit. Jesus was baptized in the flesh, as man, not for his sake, but for ours, that the waters of baptism would be effectual. Baptism is rather important, is it not? So it's hardly an optional messianic excursion, but rather, as our Lord says, it is to fulfill all righteousness. To establish the means by which men and women and their children, because what does Peter say at Pentecost? He says, this promise is for you and for your children. But Jesus in baptism establishes the means by which men and women and their children are brought into God's covenant family. Jesus went into the wilderness. We're going to be meditating upon this very soon, as I said, in Lent. Jesus went into the wilderness to fast and pray and to be tempted of Satan, not as a sort of test of strength, uh, not as a sort of gamble. Satan, I bet I can take you one-on-one. But in order to do battle, in order to bring victory where all of us had failed so that we in him would conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think we would say uh, fighting temptation is pretty important. Well, thanks be to God that we can actually fight it, not only fight it, but be victorious because Jesus in the flesh as our substitute was victorious. Related to the above is number two. I'm thinking of of Mark 1, the works of Jesus, whether it's the calling of the 12, the healing of the sick, and especially the exercising of demons, are acts of war. That's not the whole picture. That's not all that's going on in, in Scripture, but it's a part of it, and it's a big part of it. And more broadly, if we ignore the militaristic dimension of the scriptures, if you will, we do so at our own interpretive and even spiritual peril. The gospel itself is an announcement of something that has happened, it's an announcement of victory. Jesus Christ victory over sin, death, and Satan by his incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. And an announcement of victory assumes necessarily that there's a war, that there's a battle that has been won. I'm embarrassed to do this, but I'm gonna quote C.S. Lewis. He's overquoted in the Anglican tradition. I try to avoid it, but here we are. He writes this in Mere Christianity. Enemy occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great c- campaign of sabotage. The world was enslaved to sin, it was under the tyranny of Satan, the archetypal Pharaoh who held the power of death as Hebrews says, as the book of Hebrews says. And Jesus comes And he says says this explicitly in the Gospel of John. He comes and he casts out the ruler of this world and condemns him. So it would behoove us to read the Gospels through this lens. Again, it's not the only lens that we read it through, but to understand the events of the life of Christ as a series of battles where he is taking back what is rightfully his, where he is deftly and winsomely wresting control from the powers of darkness, healing and restoring and redeeming the world which he made. The kingdom of God does come on earth as in heaven. But we know from the gospels, we know from scripture, And frankly, we know from experience that it does not come easily. We are indeed wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In Epiphany Tide, we glory in the manifestation and revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And let us not forget, I mean, we're so used to reading it, Uh, to hearing it, to seeing about it, let us not forget that it was God who came in the flesh. It's God here in Mark 1 who's winning the battle. It's God who fights for us. Let us not forget also what that God, our God, is like that there is nothing and no one like him, as he proclaims to the prophet Isaiah. One of the major themes of the book of Isaiah is the greatness of God, the otherness of God, that is the holiness of God, that he is all-powerful, that he created all things, that the cedars of Lebanon, Americanized that the redwood forest, That the stars in the sky, that the rulers and the nations of the world are as nothing in comparison to him. Isaiah chapter 40, our Old Testament lesson, uh, marks a turning point in the book. The first 39 chapters are largely concerned with, you guys have messed up really bad, if I can summarize it it's full of rebuke and judgment and condemnation of the israelites as well as the pagan nations of the earth namely the assyrians you see the people of god had not followed the lord they had not kept the covenant but they had and as the text says they had despised the holy one of israel Chapter 40 begins this way. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says God. O priest, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Comfort her, for her humiliation is ended. Her sin is pardoned. Then there ensues, y'all heard this during Advent, a prophecy about John the Baptist, the voice crying in the wilderness, and then Christ who will, verse 11, feed his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs with his arm. And then in verse 12, we should have just read from 12 to the end of the chapter. God begins to remind his people who he is. This is a very powerful portion of scripture on the greatness of God. He reminds his people who he is so that they will be strengthened And have hope and God here isn't bragging this isn't just God you know flexing but he's comforting and correcting his people listen again to the latter part of our reading because Israel at this time you know the whole world is sort of beset by the Assyrian Empire And then, uh, you know, a century and a half later, you would have had the southern kingdom of Judah, from which Isaiah, you know, Isaiah was from, they would have been in exile. So people would have been reading this without any hope, and you can think in the first century how it would have read, under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And throughout history, Christians uh, undergoing persecution. Maybe even us now that are discouraged in our walk, discouraged in, at the state of the world. But the Lord speaks this to his people. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You, the people of God, are beset by these troubles. And God says, have you forgotten who I am? brothers and sisters, just to take a moment and reflect on the greatness of our God and to realize that that God, the God that we read of in Isaiah chapter 40, that's our God. The God who made the stars, the God who clothes the lilies of the field, a God that will not Forget you, a God that will never leave you or forsake you, a God that keeps his promises, a God whose covenant, the covenant that he has made with us through the precious blood of his son Jesus Christ, a covenant which is more sure than the rising of the sun and the setting of the same. Let us never forget who God is that it is this God which is manifest to us in Jesus Christ. Because God is who he is, the worship of the church is serious business, because the God whom we worship is holy and mighty and utterly worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. Therefore, we we do not commune with him. We do not come into his presence presumptuously or flippantly, but rather in fear and trembling with all solemnity, yet nevertheless intimately with joy and thanksgiving." for the God of whom Isaiah speaks, the mighty warrior, the conquering king of of whom we read in the gospels is for us and calls us into union with himself. In the late 90s, I guess early 2000s, I used to get triggered Not that I like to use that word. Maybe annoyed is better, right? I'd get annoyed by some of the Christian bumper stickers. Like, Jesus is my co-pilot, you know? Or Jesus is my homeboy. There was a t-shirt, you know, in the Bible Belt. It's like, no. Jesus is our Lord. He's the Lord of all, whom we can know. He's both the one whom if we saw in all his glory, if we were able to be translated up onto Mount Tabor and see our Lord transfigured, we might not survive. It would be so glorious that we could only fall at his feet as though dead. But at the same time, a friend that sticks closer than a brother He is Lord beyond all reckoning, beyond all knowing, and yet he is known. The unknowable God is made known in and through Christ. And the God spoken of in the prophet Isaiah is the God whom we seek in prayer. And our Lord in today's gospel, as was his wont, he goes out early in the morning to pray, to keep watch, as it were. Even in prayer, there's that sort of militaristic Im- imagery of, of keeping watch at the gate. He goes out early in the morning to pray, and, and this is an example for us, but also an invitation join Christ in prayer, to praise and to seek the Father in and with Christ, and in and by the Holy Spirit. There is, for the vast majority of us, a gap If not a chasm between the God whom we hear about in Holy Scripture and our experience of Him in our daily lives, to speak from sometimes it can it can seem like two different religions, like two different gods—the God whom we read about, the God whom we worship—and then our experience of God in everyday life. We are here, this church exists so that we we can seek the real thing, so that we can know Jesus Christ, not as we imagine him to be, not the Lord Jesus Christ that is culturally palatable, but this God, Brothers and sisters, don't settle. Don't settle. Do not rest until you find this God the God of Isaiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who heals the sick and casts out demons and raises the dead. And the good news is because we're God's children is that he stands at the door of our hearts and knocks. May we open the door. Not that we may become his children, because we already are, but that we may, ironically and paradoxically, become like him who no one can be likened unto. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, be all honor and glory, world without end,